External Gotham Square Dusk. It's finally happened. Hell's frozen over. Christmas is two weeks off. Arid snow is falling in Gotham. Beneath its pristine white blanket, the city looks uncharacteristically serene, almost inviting. Peace has been miraculously restored. Strangers wave hello. Salvation Army Santas ring their bells on street corners. And now, as night falls, an illuminated sign winks on above Broad Avenue. Joyeux Noël, Gotham. Only 16 shopping days left till Christmas. The streets are bustling with jolly shoppers. At a souvenir store, we find an exasperated mom squabbling with her seven-year-old. Like many other storefronts in Gotham, this one is overflowing with bootleg Batman merchandise. T-shirts, keychains, ceramic figurines. The kid is already wearing a Batman baseball cap and a little black cape, but he obviously wants more. Mom drags him off past another store window, this one full of scrap metal with a sign reading, Authentic Fragments of the Batwing, 1995 and up. A panhandler is perched at the entrance. Beneath his array jacket is a grubby sweatshirt with the familiar yellow and black logo. In Gotham this winter, Batmania is everywhere. External Gotham Square later that night. Two hours later, the snowstorm's grown into a full-fledged blizzard. The drifts are two feet deep and the streets are all but empty of cars. A massive snowplow the size of a panzer tank rumbles past, filling the frame and revealing, as it passes, a group of carolers, all bundled up in mufflers and parkas. Unbothered by the weather, they walk the streets singing, spreading cheer and goodwill to the few passers-by. They've just gone into a lovely a cappella rendition of Silent Night, when an oversized delivery truck, outfitted with snow chains, clanks slowly past in the wake of the plow. Its sides are decorated with cartoon igloos, advertising a popular ice cream snack, polar bars, oddly inappropriate for this time of year. A street corner Santa with bell and bucket waves at the truck as it rounds a corner. The carolers carol, then a violent explosion rocks the street, followed by the sound of automatic gunfire and a high wailing security alarm. External Shratch and code that moment night. Around the corner, there's carnage on the streets. The windows have blown out of Gotham's leading jewelry store. Gutshot security guards stagger and go face down in the snow as robbers, dressed in white camouflage gear, clamber out through the shattered glass with sackfuls of loot. Carolers spill around the corner to see what's going on, but a spray of gunfire sends them scattering in panic. The polar bar truck pulls even with the jewelry store, and as it does, the rear doors open. A ramp slides down from the back of the truck. The robbers scramble aboard, a mere seconds later slide out again, riding atop five Ski-Doo snowmobiles. Sirens howl. A police car appears, taking the corner just a trifle too fast, fishtailing on the icy street and plowing into a drift. Internal squad car that moment night. The cops gun the engine, but their wheels are spinning in the snow. 
no traction. They're about to climb out and give chase on foot when, through the windshield, they see the Salvation Army Santa, hoisting an AK-47 and firing directly at them. The windshield disintegrates and the cops sink from view as Santa races off to the last of the snowmobiles, which is already burdened with loot. External Street That Moment Night More squad cars converge on the jewelry store, but it's difficult to carry on a high-speed pursuit when the snow's a foot deep and the best you can do is 6 miles per hour. The cop cars skid to a halt, blocked by the rumbling snowplow. By now, of course, the looters are gone, scooting off on either side of the plow, sticking to the snowy sidewalks. External streets a moment later night. Snowmobiles glide across the sidewalks, sending the few hardy souls who are out on the streets diving for cover. A couple of derelicts are cowering behind a fire hydrant, trying to avoid getting run over. Every time they poke their heads out, another skidoo whizzes past, missing them by inches. The robbers fan out in various directions. These guys are obviously going to get clean away, unless... The derelict points up at the night sky, where a beacon is blazing in the darkness. The black silhouette of a bat. Internal police car that moment night. More sirens. A cop takes a radio call as he streaks down the long, wide avenue which borders Gotham Park, one of the few streets which is relatively clear. The cop at the wheel goes wide-eyed and nudges his partner in disbelief. Before their eyes, five snowmobiles appear from the cross streets up ahead and converge at the entrance to Gotham Park. Bringing up the rear is Santa Claus. What the hell? External entrance to park that moment night. Several squad cars are now massed at the entrance to the park. But there's one problem. The city's snowplows don't operate on the park roads. And the entrance is blocked off with sawhorses reading close to traffic. A huge steep drift prevents them from entering, and so all they can do is stand by helplessly, watching, as the snowmobiles vanish into the trees. The cops race about like headless chickens, trying to concoct a plan. A couple of them are trying to scale the stone walls of the park. Another is at his car, barking into a radio mic. Yeah, you heard me. Snowmobiles. So what do we do? Chase him on foot? All eyes turn at the blare of a horn. The cops peer down the long corridor of the cross street and see a strange black vehicle barreling toward them at 90 miles per hour with no intention of stopping. The Batmobile. Cops dive left and right. A split second later, a 40-foot jet of Nova Intensity flame erupts from the front of the jet black supercar instantaneously dissolving the drift that blocks the entrance to the park, turning the ice and snow on the pass before it into water. The Batmobile screams past in the wake of an eye. The cops get to their feet, cold as it is. They're sweating. One of them mops his brow and announces, dumbfounded. That was Batman. No shit! Cop 2 yanks Cop 1 into the nearest squad car, and the others follow suit. Engines rev. As long as the Batmobiles cleared a path, they might as well join in the chase. External bridle path that moment. Two burly teenagers 
both dressed in red berets and parkas with black Batman sweatshirts visible underneath, are trudging along the path when they're startled by a pair of speeding skidoos. Moments later, they spot a red glow on the horizon, and their jaws drop as the Batmobile roars into view, burning off the snow in its path. Thrilled beyond words, they whoop with glee, slapping high fives as the car streaks past. Internal Batmobile on Batman that moment. His face is weirdly illuminated by the flame still spitting from the front of the car. Cool as ever, approaching the chase is a simple problem in logic. He checks a radar display on his dashboard and sees five blips. External park on squad cars that moment night. The cops follow along in Batman's path. The lead car loses control and plows headlong into a drift. The driver jams the pedal, but his rear wheels end up digging a deep rut in the ice. He sits there cursing, pumping the accelerator as other cops race past him on foot. Internal Batmobile on Batman The various robbers have spread out, their vehicles bounding over the hilly terrain of the park. He spots two of them up ahead. As he draws closer, they part ways, veering off to the left and right. Angle on Batmobile moving. Pods open on the front fenders, and missile launchers rotate into place. The Batmobile fires a pair of heat-seeking torpedoes, which burrow into the snow on either side and disappear. Angle on left snowmobile moving. The driver looks back over his shoulder and sees what appears to be a black shark fin plowing through the snow behind him, gaining fast. He takes evasive action, but the shark fin always seems to follow. Just as he approaches the crest of a hill, the torpedo slams into the rear of the snowmobile. The force of impact knocks the robber cleanly off. His loot lands in the snow beside him, but the snowmobile keeps going. Sailing over the crest of the hill and striking the rocks beyond with a deafening explosion. Angle on right snowmobile moving. This robber's a little smarter than his buddy. When he sees the shark fin on his tail, he noses his snowmobile off into a grove of trees. The trees are too closely spaced for the torpedo to maneuver. It strikes the nearest tree trunk and explodes harmlessly. The robber is feeling good about himself because the Batmobile can't follow either. But Batman has a plan B. As he drives along the grove, he hits the accelerator passing the snowmobile on its left. A steel spike attached to a cable launches from the side of the Batmobile and wedges itself into a distant tree. The cable goes taut and the tree topples directly into the path of the second snowmobile. The vehicle crashes into the trunk and the hapless robber goes cartwheeling head over heels into a drift. In the distance, cops appear, racing to the scene on foot, ready for mop-up duty. Batman kills the flamethrower, hits the brakes, and fishtails doing a quick 180 on the snow. He's just spotted fresh quarry. Snowmobiles 3 and 4, whizzing over a rolling white pasture in the distance. External park that moment. We're at a makeshift campsite where a cluster of homeless people are burning refuse in a garbage can to keep warm. They look on in puzzlement as the two snowmobiles whiz past and disappear over a crest of a hill. 
external lakefront on snowmobiles number three and number four. They bounce down the hillside and skid, arriving at the edge of a frozen over lake with the roar of the Batmobile behind them. The two drivers get the same idea simultaneously. Smiling, they rev their engines and set out over the ice of the lake. Now the Batmobile crests the ridge. The car's weight tips suddenly and it begins to skid down the hill toward the lake. Batman sees what's happening and kills the flamethrower just in time. But he can't break the car on the snowy slope. The prow of the Batmobile slides out onto the edge of the lake. And under its weight, the ice begins to crack. The left front tire takes a sudden dip. And worse yet, the car is sliding forward. Internal Batmobile on Batman. He shifts frantically from drive to reverse, trying to rock the car out of its predicament. But his rear wheels find no purchase. He can hear the ice cracking beneath him. Grimacing, he throws a switch on the dashboard. External lake on Batmobile. And the trunk pops open. An industrial strength grappling hook shoots upward and digs in at a point beyond the crest of the hill. And a concealed winch assembly begins to grind away, hauling the Batmobile uphill, out of danger. Internal Batmobile on Batman. Suspended just above the icy lake, he sees the snowmobile vanishing into the distance. He opens yet another panel on the dashboard. External lake on snowmobiles number three and four. The robbers give each other a big thumbs up. They're almost halfway across the lake now and the Batmobile is disabled. All at once they hear a strange whistling overhead. Fireworks? No, it's a thermite bomb rocketing past them, hitting the ice some 40 feet ahead and exploding gaudily. Jagged chunks of ice break free and shift in the frigid water, and the robbers are skidding into the drink before they know what's hit them. Angle on snowmobile number five moving. The last of the robbers is Santa Claus, his big sack filled not with toys, but precious stones. He approaches the edge of the park, negotiating his way through a maze of rocky outcroppings. He squirts out from behind a boulder into a clearing and gasps in panic as a searing burst of flame erupts behind him. The Batmobile speeds out from the other side of the boulder. Santa twists his accelerator, desperately trying to build up speed. As it is, he's barely managing to stay ahead of the flamethrower. But the jet of flame suddenly dies. The hood of the Batmobile rises half a foot, and twin projectiles launch into the air. A heavy net is strung between them, and it lands smack on top of Santa Claus, entangling the snowmobile and stopping him in his tracks. Immobilized, he watches through the net in horror as the Batmobile barrels down, when the great black machine is almost atop him. It stops on a dime six inches from his heavily padded frame. External entrance to park a minute later night. The cops are spread out near the entrance. They've rounded up the other robbers and returned most of the loot. They hear a dull roar in the distance. And a few seconds later, the Batmobile streaks into view, dragging the net behind it. Santa, his loot, and his snowmobile all tied up in one tidy parcel. At the entrance to the park, the net detaches itself from the Batmobile, 
dumping Santa into the hands of the waiting cops. Without stopping, the Batmobile roars out of the park and vanishes whence it came. A mildly humiliated cop turns to his colleague and shrugs. Merry Christmas. The second cop points to Santa, still struggling in the net. Gift wrapped in everything. Dissolved to. External City Hall Day. Twin minicam crews are camped out on the steps of City Hall, with a sizable crowd watching from the street. Commissioner Gordon is reading from a prepared statement. After a high-speed chase, over $750,000 in precious jewels were recovered intact by the police force, working in concert with Batman. At the sound of Batman's name, a chanting goes up in the crowd. Take back the streets! Take back the street! Gordon winces and lets out a sigh. The chanters are a group of pugnacious, well-muscled kids, late teens and early twenties, all dressed in identical garb black Batman sweatshirts, and little red guardian angel berets. They're obviously members of the same club, just like the guys we saw in the park. Gordon waits for them to shut up, but they don't. So he grabs the mic and speaks slowly and distinctly, trying to be heard over the din. I would like to stress that while this city enjoys a special relationship with Batman, we do not... Condone vigilantism in any form. It's no use. He's totally drowned out by the Red Berets, who continue to shout and shake their fists. Giving up, he returns the mic to a reporter and marches up the steps in a huff. The Red Berets cheer. Cut to. Insert television screen. A live, on-the-spot interview from Gotham Square. A superimposed graphic identifies a surly kid in a red beret as Mike Sikowski, spokesperson, Order of the Bat. And hey, where does this jerk Gordon get off calling us out? We're not breaking any laws. We're group concerned citizens, that's all. Just like Batman. You people are nothing but hoodlums. Hey lady, we're out here on patrol risking our necks, protecting old biddies like you. If this lame old Gordon could do his job. More catcalls from the crowd. The picture jumps suddenly as a minicam is jostled. Some sort of scuffle appears to be breaking out. Before it does, camera pulls back from the TV screen, placing us in Internal Wayne Manor Kitchen Night, where Alfred the butler is watching the Sikowski interview with extreme dismay as he trims the crust from a pair of hearty watercress sandwiches. He slices his finger open. Alfred makes a pain face. It's all Sikowski's fault. On screen, the fracas continues. Sikowski has recommandeered the mic. We're proving that the spirit of Batman is alive in this city. We're going to take back the streets. Sikowski raises a fist. Behind him, his cronies begin to chant, Take back the streets. Take back the streets. Incensed, sucking on his finger, Alfred moves to the TV and flicks it off. He turns on the radio in search of something more soothing. Good King Wenceslas pipes through the manor. Smiling, Alfred sets the sandwich plate alongside a steaming kettle on a sterling silver tea service. Internal Bruce's library that moment night. The carol continues underneath as Alfred, white linen draped over one forearm, 
sets the tea tray down on his master's big mahogany desk. He digs in his pocket for a key and unlocks a side drawer. The drawer contains a stack of yellowed aging newspaper clippings. Among them, one which reads, Thomas Wayne murdered, prominent doctor, wife slain in robbery, unidentified gunman leaves child unharmed. Alfred digs around beneath the clippings and finds a concealed switch at the rear of the drawer. Gears grind and a sectional bookcase detaches itself from the wall, sliding out a couple of feet to reveal a stone stairway which descends into darkness. Internal Batcave a moment later night. Descending the stone stairs, Alfred arrives in the Batcave. Good King Wenceslas is on the speakers down here as well. Across a catwalk, the Batmobile rests on its little plateau, wrapped in a tarp. Alfred clears some space on a lab table and sets the tea service down. He glances up at the bank of video monitors and sees Sikowski still babbling on several channels simultaneously. He scans the cave, but there's no trace of Bruce. Sir? Master Bruce? As if in response, bats screech and flutter in the distant recesses of the cavern. Alfred turns suddenly and sees Bruce behind him, suspended from a thin filament wire, rising out of a bottomless abyss. I'm not deaf, Alfred. I hear you. He's wearing his civvy, tweed pants and cashmere sweater, but he's got the utility belt, with its spring-action reel, buckled about his waist. Clutching a bundle, he hangs in midair for a moment, dangling over the void. Alfred slowly regains his composure. I took the liberty of preparing tea. I take it you've been watching the news? Bruce, still dangling, glances up at the Sikowski interview and nods. Yeah. A lot of crazy people in this world. Bruce rocks back and forth to build up momentum. He kicks off the nearest stone outcropping, lands gracefully on the Batcave floor, and unbuckles his belt. Preoccupied, he drops his mysterious bundle on the lab table. A roll of black fabric and a cluster of lightweight hollow aluminum rods connected by what appears to be surgical tubing. I should inform you... Christmas is approaching, and we've received our annual solicitation from the Fireman's Toy Fund. If I may inquire... Oh yeah, watch this. Bruce hits a trigger on a tiny gas canister attached to the tubing. The tubing inflates and the rods spring erect, stiffening, wing-like, into something which looks remarkably like the skeleton of an umbrella. Most... Ingenious, sir. What exactly is it? What does it look like? To the untrained eye, sir, it looks remarkably like the skeleton of an umbrella. Sounds good. Bruce eyes his new invention, thinks it over, smiles slyly. Good guess, Alfred. That's exactly right. Bruce hits the trigger, and the rods wilt with a hiss. He sits at his lab table. Alfred unfolds a napkin on his lap, pours a cup of tea. Splendid, sir. And if I may say, I'm glad you're putting your time to such productive use. Now, the toy fund. 
Our contribution last year was a half million dollars. We can do better than that. Then there's the foster parents program, the Gotham Homeless Crusade. Bruce nods abstractedly and tucks into his sandwich. He seems oddly preoccupied. Not exactly melancholy. But his thoughts are obviously a million miles away. Alfred looks on, concerned. Something troubling you, sir? Yeah. The holidays, I guess. Always gets me thinking about... And, to tell you the truth, I'm a little concerned about Vicky. Miss Vale, sir? Yeah. I've been thinking about it lately. Thinking about it a lot. And I still can't figure out what to get her for Christmas. Bruce shoots Alfred a solemn, perplexed look, and Alfred heaves an audible sigh of relief as we cut to internal prison cell day. Tight on a stack of coops and cages, piled high against a bare concrete wall. Each cage, and there are at least two dozen of them, contains a twittering bird, starlings, pigeons, cardinals, titwillows. Camera pulls back from the bars of the cages to reveal a very odd figure in prison greys. A canary, perched on his shoulder, sings happily as he stands in front of a grimy cracked mirror, plastering back his hair, buffing his nails with quick, bird-like strokes. Mr. Bonifaci is beak-nosed, epicene, and so fat that it seems his skin should burst. The adjective that comes to mind is obscene. Despite his eccentric appearance, he comports himself with overblown theatrical dignity. Fastidious and preening, he does not suffer insults lightly. Through another set of bars, and we realize that Mr. Bonifaci is himself caged, a prison guard arrives to slide back his cell door. Up and at him, Pangy. Pangy! Mr. Bonifaci pointedly ignores the guard, refusing to acknowledge the odious, if wholly appropriate, nickname. Bonifaci! Mr. Bonifaci finally turns. With an expression of extreme distaste, he affixes a monocle over one eye, returns the canary to its cage, and allows himself to be ushered out. Internal Warden's Office Day. Mr. Bonifaci and his attorney sit at a long table across from the warden and the members of the parole board. You want to return the money you stole? Intact. The map will show you where it's buried. The parole officer stares skeptically at a hand-scrawled map. All of it? Forty-two million dollars? Mr. Bonifaci stares down humbly at the table, as if he finds the mere mention of his transgression too embarrassing to bear. Why this sudden change of heart? Gentlemen, I want my debt to be repaid in full. I want to be part of a civilized society. Prison life is not for me. The guilt, the fear, the constant shame. One meets a disturbingly low class of people. Sure, but $42 million? Mr. Bonifaci nods plaintively. It's quite a performance. He dabs at his face with a handkerchief. It's hot in here, and he's the delicate type. 
his records clean, 13 years without an incident. I'd like to point out McLean's put his time to good use. A student of onifology, articles published in several respected journals. The parole officer thumbs through a stack of magazines. Bird World, Ornithological Review, Beaks and Feathers, Nest Egg. Birds, yes, my only source of solace. In light of this rather extraordinary gesture, I see no reason not to endorse your application for parole. Thank you, sir. You won't regret it. Mr. Bonifaci shakes hands with the members of the parole board as the guards escort him out. A black minor bird squawks loudly from its cage in the corner of the office. Crime does not pay. <laughs> Crime does not pay. Chuckles all around. On his way out, the attorney gestures towards the minor and beams at the parole board. Personally trained by my client. Internal prison cell day. Free time. The cell doors are open and the convicts are milling around in the common area. T-Bone, 220 pounds of dumb, hulking beef, saunters up to his cell and finds his bunkmate, Mr. Bonifaci, staring at a stack of empty cages. Bonifaci whirls on him suddenly, his face beat red, apoplectic with rage. Where are my boys? Shit, Pinji, I let him go. Amani? My canary is the dead winner. T-Bone flops casually on his bunk, obviously enjoying Mr. Bonifaci's profound distress. They were all cooped up, with you leaving and all. Seems like the humane thing to do. Bonifaci's gaze falls on a corner of the cell. He spots a scattering of yellow feathers, a patch of fresh blood. With the supreme effort of restraint, he turns and forces a smile. I see. You might as well have this. I won't be needing it. He tosses a Sony Walkman to T-Bone, who flicks it on. The dim strains of classical music are audible through the earphones. Well, thanks, Pinchy. No hard feeling, you know? I'm gonna miss that pudgy little ass of yours. T-Bone tunes the Walkman to a rock station, slips the headset on, grins from his bunk. Two guards arrive. As they escort him out, Mr. Bonfacci mutters, You won't miss it long. External prison main entrance day. It's 15 degrees outside as Mr. Bonifaci, aka the Penguin, waddles forth from the prison gates. Regally attired in cutaway and pinstripes. He pauses to inhale a deep lungful of the icy air. Then, with a smile of exhilaration, he removes his coat and stretches, spreading his wings, reveling in the cold. A stretch limo pulls up. Two identically gaunt and vulture-like dandies, formerly dressed with bowler hats and umbrellas, step out to meet him. These two gentlemen, Frick and Frack, serve as the Penguin's general factoti and business managers. Welcome back, Mr. Boniface. Mr. Frick, Mr. Frack, our years of planning are about to pay off. Internal limo moving day. Now that he's loose, the Penguin's rapacious side is beginning to show. 
His eyes twinkle with greed as he contemplates his own ingenuity. I take it they found the money, all right? We put it exactly as you specified. Forty-two million two hundred seventy-one thousand and nine dollars. How much we got left? Frick reaches into his coat for a balance sheet. Uh, let's see. An initial capitalization of 42 million and change compounded over 13 years at an annual return of just under 16%. Fine, fine. How much? 79 million, excluding the sum we buried. The penguin lets out a dry, heaving chortle, midway between a normal laugh and a duck's quack. <laughs> checks his watch and reaches into his pocket for a small electronic device. Speaking of burials. External prison yard day. T-bone on work detail. He's got the Walkman on and he's shoveling snow to the beat. He winces and removes the headphones. The music he was listening to has been replaced by an eerie high-pitched whine. He's twisting the knob trying to find the station he was tuned to when a pigeon dives down straight at his head. Hey! He drops the shovel as the bird strikes, glancing off his head. Before he can react, three more pigeons have swooped down at him, pecking at his head and shoulders in a frenzy. He lets out a howl and staggers through the prison yard in a frenzy. Dozens of pigeons are pouring over the prison walls, shrieking hideously, descending on him. He falls to the ground, screaming for help, but the other prisoners run like rabbits, terrified. By the time the guards come racing across the courtyard, T-Bone's no longer even visible. There's just a swarming man-shaped mass of pigeons, pecking away, flapping their wings insanely. Covering their faces as they move in, the guards blow their whistles, beat at the pigeons with billy clubs. All at once, the pigeons take off en masse, leaving T-Bone's mutilated corpse sprawled in the yard. Our guard notices the Walkman, picks up the earphones to listen, and hears nothing but rock music. Surf and bird by the Trashman. Bird, bird, bird is the word. External road on Penguin's limo moving. An aerial view of the limo as it cruises down the deserted road leading away from the prison. It disappears from view, and all at once, the frame is filled with pigeons. Great squalling flocks of them, dutifully following their master as he makes his way back to Gotham City. Dissolve to Internal Wayne Manor Entryway Night Alfred opens the front door and finds a bundled-up Vicky out on the portico, red-cheeked, flushed, and happy. She pulls him forward, gives him a quick peck on the cheek. Guess what, Alfred? I think I found a present for Bruce. She's got a long, skinny gift box propped up against the exterior wall. At first, it doesn't want to fit through the door. It must be eight feet long. But with Alfred's help, she gets it inside. The faithful butler stares curiously at this odd-shaped gift. Skis. Don't let on, okay? You won't hear a word of it from me. He's such a nightmare to shop for. What did you get him year after year? I find you can't go wrong with surveillance equipment.
Let me put this under the tree. Not so fast. She reaches into the pocket of her coat and pulls out another small gift. Alfred stares at the tag. To Alfred. Love, Vicky. And tries to suppress a huge grin. Why, Miss Vale? What's all this? Alfred and Vicky turn. It's Bruce, dressed for dinner, marching down the long stairway in the entry hall. Vicky waves frantically. Don't look. It's your present. Vicky rushes over to embrace him. He gapes at the long, skinny box. What, what did you get me? Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? Vicky frowns and gives him a kiss. She nestles up against him, whispers in his ear. I'm going to give you the happiest Christmas you've ever had. Still in the clinch, Bruce shoots a look at Alfred. Taking the hint, Alfred clears his throat and bends to pick up one end of the ski box. He backs out of the entry hall, dragging the box before him. Cut to External Gotham Park Night. Fires burn in garbage cans. Tents and lean-tos dot the snowy landscape. Men, women, and children wander aimlessly, huddling against the cold. An army of the homeless has set up a camp in Gotham Park. On the nearby periphery, picketers, half-concerned citizens, half-down-and-outers are marching the sidewalks, keeping a candlelight vigil. Hand-lettered placards read, Save the Park. Parks are for people. This park is our home. The source of the protest? A towering sign posted in a corner of the park announcing the imminent construction of a new luxury high-rise. The Gotham Park Towers, a project of Shaw Construction, Inc. A Lamborghini sits at a traffic light nearby. Internal Lamborghini that moment night. Bruce and Vicky, dressed for dinner, stare out at the demonstration. Homeless. I was just down here Tuesday. Seems like there's more every day. Bruce starts to say something, but can't think of anything to say. Christmas time, and they say there's over a thousand people living in the park already. Yeah. The light changes. Bruce throws the car into gear and, at the next intersection, turns the car right into the park. External pub in the park night. Despite the name, it's a tony little bistro catering to Gotham's elite. A panhandler, underdressed for the cold, has been hustling the customers as they come out. A couple of parking attendants are trying to drag him discreetly away as Bruce's car pulls up. A valet opens the car for Bruce and Vicky, who look on in concern as the panhandler gets the bum's rush. The liveried doorman shrugs apologetically. Sorry for the inconvenience, as they enter. Post-dinner, Vicky's got a sheaf of photos spread out on the table in front of Bruce. Shots of Gotham's homeless being forcibly evicted from the slum dwellings, erecting their shanty towns in Gotham Park. They're already raising the tenements and SROs downtown. These people don't have any place else to go. If the city starts selling off the park... Bruce takes a good long look at his opulent surroundings. Huge windows open on a serene and picturesque view of the park. Campfires flicker in the distance. I guess I'll pass on dessert. Bruce, you do a lot more than most people ever dream of. Sure. Comes off the top of my taxes. That's not what I meant. 
They exchange a long, silent look. Of course she's referring to Batman. Still, the argument doesn't hold much water with Bruce. What I do doesn't come close to the root of the problem, Vicky. I'm just a band-aid. Bruce, it's been ages. Vicky turns and rapidly closes her photo folder. Millionaire construction magnate Randall Shaw is in the restaurant table hopping, and he's just glommed onto Bruce. Randall, you remember Vicky. How's the construction business? The Park Tower, all systems go, if we can get the junkies and winos cleared out. Not too late to get in on the deal. I'll, I'll think about it. Say, Walter Barrett's due back from Europe. We should all get together at the club. Nice to see you again, Miss Veal. Miss Veal maintains a big, phony smile as Shaw moves off to the next table. She murmurs to Bruce through clenched teeth. What a pig. I've known him since he was seven years old. He was a pig then, too. Now he wants to wobble up the park. <laughs> Bruce, isn't there something you can do about people like that? What? Tie him up with a bat rope? No, you idiot. I meant you, Bruce. Bruce nods. Oh, yeah. Subtle distinction. Internal pub in the park night. Bruce and Vicky emerge from the restaurant. He hands his parking stub to a valet. A crowd's beginning to form in the lot outside. The red and blue bubble of a police car is flashing a short distance off, near the entrance to the park. Two red berets in full order of the bat regalia look on as a recently mugged woman jogger gives her statement to the investigating cops. Bruce and Vicky, intrigued by the Batman wannabes, move a little closer, within eavesdropping range. We were on patrol, so the whole thing. I was attacked, three men in ski masks. And these two broke it up? These two? They ran like rabbits. I never saw anybody take off, so... Hey, 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 somebody had to go for the cops. You, shut up, alright? Lady, who was it that bailed you out? A kid. 13 or 14 top. He just came out of nowhere and tore into them. It was so quick I didn't even see his face. Nearby, Vicky shoots a highly quizzical look at Bruce, who responds with a mystified shrug. Her professional curiosity peaked. She wanders over to introduce herself to the jogger. An exasperated cop leads the red berets away from the crime site. Dumb shit. Shouldn't have been jogging in the park anyway. Look around you, it's full of bums. Bruce gestures at the Red Beret's Batman sweatshirt as he passes. Nice outfit. Peace off, geek. Dissolve to. External waterfront district night. Snow blankets the abandoned warehouses, rimming Gotham Harbor. Foghorns blare in the distance as a pair of stiletto heels, totally inappropriate for the weather, click across the sidewalk and pause at mid-block where a wide wooden plank leads down from street level to a seedy hole-in-the-wall bar, the Wharf Rat. Internal Wharf Rat Night A roughneck joint, about as trendy as the average bait shack. The clientele consists primarily of surly types who are saving up for their next tattoo. A TV over the bar is tuned to the late news. 
And tomorrow the city's power elite will be turning out in force to greet millionaire industrialist Walter Barrett, who returns to Gotham after a five-year stay in Europe. The bartender switches to a hockey game because none of the rowdies at the bar give a shit about Walter Barrett. None, that is. Except for a strapping young bruiser named Ricky, who gets up and makes his way to a payphone in the corner. Moments later, the owner of the high heels enters. She opens her black fur coat and unwraps her muffler, revealing exotic, vaguely Eurasian features. She's dark and elegant, fine-boned, regal of bearing, and her name, though we don't know it yet, is Selina Kyle. She's not the kind of girl who typically frequents the wharf rat, and so her entrance creates quite a stir. A longshoreman at the nearby pool table misses his shot and digs a rut in the felt. Two blousy whores size her up territorially as she finds an open stool at the bar and settles in with serene indifference. The regulars, of course, are all but licking their chops. The only guy in the joint who hasn't noticed her yet is Ricky, who's still on the phone. Yo, Ricky here, what's the haps? In mid-conversation, he notices Selena. She smiles invitingly right at him. Mildly startled, he smiles back. Midnight? No sweat. I'll see you then. He hangs up eagerly. Then, with a deep breath, he hitches up his pants and swaggers over to Selena's end of the bar. Well, Ricky, is it? How'd you know that? I heard you on the phone. Talking to your girlfriend. Girlfriend? <laughs> nah, nah, that was business. Selena makes a big show of peeling off her gloves. If you've got time for a little pleasure, maybe you'd like to buy me a drink. She clasps his hand. His eyes bug out. Three enormous rings and a diamond bracelet. There must be several thousand in rocks in her left hand alone. Ricky gapes at the sparklers, bedazzled. Damn, girl. They almost look real. Why wouldn't they be? Ricky is not the smoothest guy around, and his line of thought is all too evident. He swallows hard and tries not to stare. You'd have to be crazy to wear the real thing to a dive like this. Oh, they're real, all right. So are these. She waves her fingernails, long, polished, and talon-sharp, in front of his eyes. With lightning speed, before he can react, she pins his wrist to the bar, and with one quick stroke carves a thin, bloody stripe in the back of his hand. Selena's eyes flash as he gasps in shock. He tries to jerk his hand away, but he can't break her grip. Then, her dominance firmly established, she releases his hand with a coy, Cheshire cat smile. Weren't we going to have a drink? He blinks, forces a chuckle, smiles unsteadily. She takes his wounded hand, lifts it slowly to her mouth, and laps gently at the blood. Ricky is hypnotized. She's got an odd way of flirting, but Ricky finds it somehow intriguing. He dabs at his hand with a napkin and signals to the bartender. Cut to External Waterfront Pier 31 Night Just after midnight, the snow is still falling. The waters are icy and the wharfs are deserted. Almost. A small steamboat is docked at Pier 31 and the deck is lined with thugs, mean, ugly, and heavily armed. 
A similar contingent of gun-toting goons is waiting to greet them on the dock below. The boys on the dock hoist assault rifles as the boat thugs extend the gangplank. Something major is about to happen. The chief dock goon gestures to his lieutenant, who grabs a black medical bag. Hands raised, the two of them start up the gangplank. Throughout all this, the dock goons keep their guns trained on the boat thugs, covering their buddies. One of them turns to a colleague. Where's that goddamn Ricky? Probably out getting laid. And here we are freezing our balls off. External steamboat on deck that moment night. The lieutenant unloads chemical testing gear from his doctor's bag. The lead boat thug gestures to a stack of shipping crates, which rest atop a large net spread out across the deck. You pick. The chief goon selects a crate at random. Two boat thugs tip it on its side and, using a crowbar, pry off a false bottom, revealing a dozen packets of white powder. POV shot high angle that moment. We're now watching the scene from a vantage point atop a ramshackle boathouse at water's edge. Down on the deck of the steamboat, the lieutenant goes to work testing the merchandise. It's pure. A black silhouette is peering down from the boathouse roof. The mysterious watcher ducks quickly out of sight. The only details that register are a pair of ominously familiar pointy ears. Let's do it. He gestures to his boys on the dock. A crane and winch assembly rotates into place over the deck, and the boat thugs gather up the corners of the netting and attach them to the big hook. Hold it. Let's see the money. Down on the wharf, a dock goon kneels beside a metal suitcase and opens it. Lots of long green inside. The boat thug signals thumbs up, and the crates rise into the air as the goon with the suitcase starts up the gangplank. Low angle on gangplank that moment. The goon with the suitcase marches up. Beyond him, in the distance, a lithe black shadow vaults off the boathouse roof and makes a silent, graceful landing on the long shaft of the crane. Another angle that moment. The moment of maximum tension. Grim faces all around. Everyone holding a gun on someone else as the suitcase arrives on deck and crane swings over the pier. Angle on crane that moment. Razor-sharp, chrome, steel talons slash suddenly through the air. On dock low angle that moment. The netting gives way and two dozen shipping crates rain down onto the pier, crushing two dock goons underneath. The crates explode into splinters, littering the dock with drugs and random art objects as the other dock goons scatter in panic. On steamboat that moment. Nobody knows quite what's going on, panicking. The goon with the suitcase full of money turns tail and dives for the gangplank. Boat Thug 1 sees him and squeezes off a quick shot. Winged, the goon topples off the gangplank and hits the drink, suitcase and all. Pandemonium. All at once, everyone's opening fire. Thinking he's been double-crossed, Boat Thug 1 turns on the chief goon and shoots him twice at point-blank range. You son of a bitch! Go after it! Get the money! Go! He raises his gun, and the second boat thug dutifully obeys, diving off the deck into a hail of gunfire. Everyone's ducking for cover. Boat thug one barks orders at the pilot house. Solta las samaras! Cast off! Look! Boat thug one whirls just in time to see a shadowy figure landing, cat-like, on the deck mere yards away. 
Clad in inky black leather from head to toe, the intruder's face is concealed by what appears to be a bondage mask, studded with openings for the eyes and mouth that spans one incongruous touch, a pair of pointed ears. She bares her teeth and hisses. It's a woman. Bothug One is momentarily mesmerized, and the time it takes him to lift his gun, she's produced a cat of nine tails. She snaps at him reels him in, and with one lethal stroke, rakes her steel talons across his face and throat. He slumps to the deck, lifeless. The other boat thug rushes her. She catches him under the jaw with a sudden upthrust, lifts him into the air, and sends him toppling into the water. The gangplank falls aside as the steamboat pulls away from the pier. She hoists an abandoned assault rifle, scatters the dock goons with a round of automatic fire and vaults off the boat, landing in a graceful crouch on the edge of the pier. Most of the dock goons have taken flight, but a few unlucky specimens remain behind. She somersaults forward, takes one goon off his feet with a crack of the whip, knocks another off the dock with a twirling high kick to the jaw, and sends two more reeling with swift talon slashes. The whole frenzied mop-up action takes just under ten seconds. Alone at last, she stands back to survey the scene. Counting the stiffs on the boat, which is now receding in the harbor, there must be well over a dozen dead. The snow is speckled with red. A half dozen bodies lie sprawled in their own blood. One of them, the lone survivor, is face down and softly moaning. Retracting her steel claws, the masked woman crouches amid the wreckage of the smashed shipping crates. Bundles of white powder, millions of dollars worth, are scattered all about the pier. But she couldn't seem less interested. Instead, she's checking the manifest number stamped on the side of the crates. She finds crate number 18396-BB and rummages among its contents until she comes up with a carefully wrapped parcel. She opens it carefully and holds it up for inspection. The statuette of a raven, carved from solid onyx, glistens in the moonlight. The woman pauses long enough to slip a small card in the moaning punk's back pocket. Then, cradling the raven under one arm, she dashes off on silent cat feet. A lantern approaches. It's an old salt, some kind of hapless night watchman. And his face goes bone white at the sight of the carnage on the docks. He kneels beside the moaning punk, turns the body over, and gasps because the punk's face has been clawed to shreds. El Morcelago! Morcelago! Cut to Internal Penguin's Lair Night The unique chamber in which we find ourselves is alive with the flutter and song of cold-weather birds, dozens of them, all chirping, flitting about in the rafters alighting on special perches mounted in the walls. At the center of this penthouse room is a vast sunken pool. Arctic turns lull on the surrounding rocks as a lackey with a wheelbarrow empties cracked ice into the already frigid water. Carefully landscaped, it looks like the penguin exhibit at the Gotham Zoological Gardens. A massive, indistinct shape glides beneath the surface. It's not a whale. It's too pink. It is, instead, the penguin, 
as he breaks the surface, sputtering. He sees Frick standing in the open doorway. Mr. Bonifaz, your visitor has arrived. Thank you, Mr. Frick. Show her in. The penguin moves to the edge of the sunken pool. Two of his lackeys swivel a crossbar, which hangs from the ceiling by a long chain into place over his head. He grasps it with both hands and the crossbar rises, hoisting his formidable bulk out of the water. Internal high-rise corridor that moment. Frick leads the visitor down a long corridor lined on either side with bird cages, exotic songbirds with brilliantly hued plumage. Camera tracks along behind her, and although we can't see her face, there must be something distinctively feline about her, because the birds are shrieking and fluttering in their cages, recoiling instinctively as she strolls past. Frick opens a door and ushers her into... Internal penguins lair a moment later night. Our visitor, Selina Kyle, enters the penguin pool room. Her teeth begin to chatter. The big bay windows have been thrown open, and snow is blowing in from outside. It's freezing in here. She sees the penguin, wearing a thin dressing gown and an apron outfitted with seed pouches, scattering birdseed on the window ledge for the pigeons, totally oblivious to the cold. He turns, throws his arm wide in greeting, kisses the back of Selena's hand. Ah, Miss Kyle, at last we meet. At last we meet. Pigeons? Yeah, they're common birds. Dirty, stupid, and unattractive. But they're very obedient. And they do crap on people's heads, may I? She extends a shopping bag. The penguin removes a parcel and unwraps it, revealing the raven statuette. He sets it on a nearby desk, fondles it reverently, and beams at Selina. I see your reputation was not exaggerated. I've located others, all but one. <sighs> I'm surprised you don't catch pneumonia. With an apologetic smile, the penguin pulls the window shut. My normal body temperature is 92 degrees. Joins, they find me inhospitable. I see why they call you the penguin. They may call me that, but rarely more than once. Champagne? She nods. He pours two glasses, hands one to Selena, raises a toast. My dear, here's to the second biggest crime in the history of Gotham City. Cut to Internal Police Observation Room Night. Commissioner Gordon and another cop, Lieutenant Eddie Bullock, are in a darkened antechamber adjacent to an interrogation room. It wasn't about the drugs. Whoever it was left 30 kilos sitting on the docks. They're watching through a two-way glass panel as a terrified man with a heavily bandaged face tells his story. It's the lone survivor of the dock massacre, Julio, and his voice is audible over a concealed intercom. Un silhouette negra, corcolemos. Igaras, el demonio, el morcelago, morcelago. What's that he keeps saying? Morcelago, bat. Nonsense. That duck looked like a slaughterhouse. Batman's never committed murder. We did find this in his back pocket. Bullock hands Gordon a card. It reads, Those who feed on the soul of Gotham will suffer my wrath. And in lieu of a signature, there's a little black bat emblem in the bottom corner. While Gordon's staring at it, a policeman pokes his head in. Commissioner, we got Barrish. 
internal police interrogation room that moment. A cubicle down the hall. The splenetic Walter Barrett, millionaire industrialist, is fidgeting in his chair as Gordon enters. Fine, welcome. These stormtroopers of yours dragged me away from my coming home party. I'd like to know the meaning of this. I'd like to know how 30 kilos of pure cocaine wound up concealed in your personal effects. Gordon, I come from one of the oldest and most influential families in Gotham. If you plan to accuse me of smuggling drugs, be my guest. I'll have your badge before you leave this room. Gordon weighs the threat. He nods to the cops in attendance. Book the son of a bitch. Gordon storms out. Barrett jumps out of his chair, but the cops restrain him. Outraged, he bats their hands away. I believe I'm still entitled to a phone call. Cut to. External downtown Gotham Day. Vicky with her camera, squeezing, off snaps. She's standing behind a sawhorse, part of a crowd of onlookers at a downtown demolition site. Surveyors and hardhats bustle about in a vacant lot, a full city's block in size. Fenced off and strewn with rubble. The only structure still standing is a lone, decrepit tenement building. A wrecking ball is poised above it, ready to strike. A sign at one corner of the lot announces a 40-story office complex soon to be erected on this site by Shaw Construction, Inc. Down below is Randall Shaw himself, in necktie and hard hat, speaking into a walkie-talkie. Come on, let's move it! We're an hour behind as it is! A few moments later, a cluster of people emerge from the tenement building. A mixed team of cops and construction goons, who are forcibly removing a destitute family from the condemned building. Vicky watches angry. Her POV telephoto lens. A quick series of shots, the squatters wailing and struggling clinging to the doorways, unwilling to leave. Their few belongings are packed in a couple of cardboard boxes, which the cops heave rudely out onto the street. Finally, the handcuffs and nightstick. Angle on Shaw that moment day. A surveyor grabs Shaw by the arm and points out the woman taking photos in the crowd. Shaw recognizes her instantly. His face turns into a mask of outrage, as if he's been personally betrayed. Jesus Christ, that's Bruce Wayne's bimbo? He makes eye contact with her. Vicky stares back defiantly. He's about to stroll over and tell her off when a hard hat signals to him. Phone call, Mr. Shaw. Guy says it's urgent. Hold the ball. I want to hear it crash. He climbs into the cab of a nearby truck, where he picks up a cellular phone. Intercut Barrett and Shaw. Barrett's still in custody at the police station using his one phone call to contact the construction magnate. It's me, Randall. Walter Barrett. I want you to call my attorney. That was my shipment they busted up last night. Jesus, Walter, I... Why are you calling me? It's worse than that. Somebody took my raven. Shaw stares at the phone in horrified disbelief. 